almost all Indians, including me, where when we think of first Indian to have come to America, we immediately think of Swami Vivekanand. And you know, first time when I went to Chicago, I made sure that I go to the Art Institute and pay my tributes to the great land, you know, where um, where first Indian came. But less we know, you know, little do we know that with Vivekanand also uh, there was another colleague of uh, another Indian who came with Vivekanand, same time, same year, same place, Chicago, and his name was Virchand Gandhi. And even I didn't know that until I started researching for this book. So this this is again lesser known aspects of Indian uh, Indian American history that that I thought that we should bring to the forefront. So he was the first Jain to have come to America, because Jain monks and nuns, Jain ascetics, are prohibited from uh, traveling. They cannot ride in any vehicle, no airplane, no car, nothing, no not even a bicycle. So Jain, there was a Jain monk who received the invitation for the same World Parliament of Religions, Parliament of World Religions, but because of the prohibitions, because of their own self-discipline. The, he inspires uh, uh, this uh, Jain lay person who is very well learned, learned person, you know, pretty pretty good scholar of Jainism. So he is sent to represent Jainism with Vivekanand at the same parliament. So that's where I started start my history of this chapter on history of Jains in America. So I, I start with with that other Gandhi, you know, Mahatma Gandhi, everybody knows, but this is the other Gandhi who came with Vivekanand to represent Jainism in the same parliament. Welcome to That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Pankaj Jain. We discuss his latest book, Dharma in America, a short history of Hindu Jain diaspora, his path from the tech industry into academia, and much more. Hope you enjoy it. Dharma in America, the short history of uh, Hindu Jain diaspora. Can you tell listeners about the book and what inspired you to write it? And what are you intending to get across with it? Sure. Yes, that's a great question. And uh, really goes to the you know heart of the matter, which is that uh, I read a book called Muslims and the Making of America. And that book talks about how Muslims have been part of the origin, uh, sort of original myth of America. You know, there was not a time period where Muslim uh, that were coming as African slaves uh, were not part of America. So since beginning, that was happening. And then all the, you know, over the centuries, how different Muslims have contributed to the making of America. That gave me the idea that what about Hindus or, or Indians? Uh, can we trace some something similar in the larger context of the making of America and Hindu or slash Indic contributions. So then I thought that, you know, I, for that story to be written, I'll have to expand the definition of America to also include South America, Central America, and North America. And if I do that, then I can start with indentured laborers who came to Suriname, Trinidad, Fiji, you know, as we know, uh, uh, by the British Raj to work for the sugar plant. So that's where I start the story. Then I trace uh, some of the lesser known aspects of Indic contributions to the making of America, such as alternative health measures, such as Ayurveda, which uh, Indic knowledge system and Indians as they have come to America, how they have contributed. And then the alternative musical traditions, uh, like, such as Indian classical music in America, how they have contributed to the making of America, so to speak, and on and on. So that is, the, that is how I, I started and developed this idea. So can you just, if you had to pick out, you know, what one or two examples from the, the history of 
the, the Indic diaspora in uh, the Americas writ large. We, What's lesser known? Some of these stories are at this point, thankfully gaining more attention, you know, the, the influence of, of yoga on the Beatles and, you know, even so, even Vivekananda's journey and his influence of the parliament of world religions. What, what might listeners not know about in that, in that history? If you could pick one or yes, two examples. I think, uh, yeah, that's a great question. I think, uh, uh, I think the aspects such as the Indic influence on Emerson and Thoreau is still not widely known, or uh, uh, influence of Raja Ramon Roy in the making of transcendentalists and other aspects of Christianity in America is still not that well known, or the finer details of how exactly or when exactly Ravi Shankar, the Pandit Ravi Shankar, the sitar maestro, when did he come to India? How did his journey start into making, you know, changing the landscape, musical landscape of America, especially in the 70s? Now it has all faded away, unfortunately, but that was the mainstream music culture of America, which is hard to imagine, you know, as of now. So, uh, yeah. No, no, go into Ravi Shankar a little bit because. Yeah, sure. I I mean, the reason I'm focusing in on him is by the time this comes out, it'll be in, we're recording this in the end of February. It'll be out in the beginning of March or so. And in March is the 50th anniversary of the, the Bengali Hindu genocide in Bangladesh. And, and Ravi Shankar was at the center of organizing, um, the concert for Bangladesh, which involved George Harrison and many other right, pop stars. Right. So, exactly. so let, go into Ravi Shankar coming into the United, coming to the United States and the influence yeah, of that. Yeah. So Ravi Shankar is really interesting story as a young teenager, almost like late teenager, he comes with his older brother and starts performing and eventually gets so becomes so popular. And then he invites other people, other uh, experts, uh, maestros such as, Allah Rakha on Tabla. Now, Allah Rakha is another interesting story. Uh, Ravi Shankar, of course, is so well-known and, you know, he's just the poster boy or poster great Bharat Ratna Jewel of India, the highest award that he has received. So, Ravi Shankar is still very, very, pretty well-known. But many, very less people, even less Indians uh, are not, probably not that aware of that father of Zakir Hussain, Allah Rakha, was simply a music composer for some of the black and white Bollywood Hindi films. And Allah Rakha is roped in by Ravi Shankar and he joins in uh, also in America and he becomes part of his team, Ravi Shankar, Allah Rakha and, uh, uh, and the, the Sarod Mastro, uh, uh, Ali Akbar Khan. All of these are the pioneers and then Ali Akbar Khan goes on to start uh, a music school which is still flourishing in California as, as we speak. And, and then uh, son of Allah Rakha is Zakir Hussain, of course, and he's pretty well known also. So Ravi Shankar, yeah. So I think to his credit, all these figures, the pioneers of Indian classical music, they collaborate very successfully with Beatles. And, you know, that story is pretty well known. But the, how they influenced jazz music of America also, and how they became so popular that they were the, uh, not just counterculture, but the main pop culture, I think, was... Uh, sort of filled with these these figures and they were performing everywhere, all these major concerts, performing on some national television in America, performing concerts such as, like you mentioned, the Bangladeshi, the concerts for Bangladesh and on and a Woodstock on, uh, concert in New York and on and on and on and on. So something happened after 70s or 80s and now it is just a faded memory in the mainstream consciousness of America. Uh, even though with you know such a large Indian diaspora in, in America, Hindu diaspora in America, almost uh, 
uh, three million, five, three to five million. I think five million. Yeah, five million people. Yet Indian classical music is barely noticed in America, which is really strange. Uh, you know that which was once pop culture is not even noticed as uh, as a counterculture culture. Something that has I think gone in reverse direction for yoga. Yoga, which was once simply probably a counterculture, is now the mainstream pop culture uh, being performed and practiced all up all across America. Millions and millions of Americans are doing yoga every day. But that is not uh, that, that that's not applicable for Indian classical music for some strange reasons. And uh, yeah, it, it, that is interesting. I mean. It, it, Right. It's funny. I did not go think about Ravi Shankar going into this interview, but mm-hmm. you know, the, you mentioned the influence on the Beatles, which is of course yes. very well known, but, very well but, known. But, but I think lesser well known and, and you hinted at it is the influence on jazz and John Coltrane yes. in particular yes, 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 and yes, yes. his wife, Alice Coltrane, who sadly many right. people don't really know about because she, she was very much influenced and has released entire albums of Kirtan and Bhajans and stuff. Yes. And yes. I, I just find it, I find, yes. I mean, maybe this is jazz heresy, but I actually sometimes find her music more interesting than John's. Uh-huh. Uh, not, not, not for the Bajan aspect, but just because uh-huh. she, I mean, sadly, John Coltrane died before he, you know, his career could be fully mm-hmm. realized. Um, right. uh, to go in a different direction. Um, oh, well, well, let me yeah. add one more thing. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, now, now it has become very, very common to have, you know, Hindu Vedic chants in different albums. Music Today started a huge series, but I think Ravi Shankar was a pioneer of bringing Sanskrit chants into mainstream musical traditions of America. You know, even Indian Indians didn't have that kind of a tradition where, you know, HMV or, you know, mainstream music companies in India, they were not making spiritual music, you know, with, with Sanskrit chants. But Ravi Shankar does this in America, which is amazing. I mean, it was just unimaginable how he did it. And I think to his credit, he not just performed, you know, he not just came and performed, but he actually taught Americans to how to appreciate Indian classical music. So that, that also is, I think the, he's a pioneer to start the series of what later became the word LECDEM, lecture demonstration, which was later pioneered, you know, taken by Spik Mackey in India. Spik Mackey is another NGO that promotes Indian classical music. But Ravi Shankar does all this, you know, before anybody even thought of all these things in India, people were just performing, you know, dry performing, just come, perform, go away. You know, users, audience may or may not have understood what they have performed. Which rag is it? Rag Bhairavi? Is it, is it Rag Malkons? Rag Ahir Bhairavi? What is it? But Patil Ravi Shankar, he would actually demonstrate, give lectures and teaches Americans how to appreciate, how to listen to Indian classical music. So all these are really great, great efforts by Pandit Ravi Shankar in America with his colleagues, with his great masters, such as Ali Akbar Khan and Takir uh, Hussain, Allah Rakhain and on and on. Sure. In the subtitle of the book, you, you hyphenate Hindu Jain diaspora. Are there are there differences? Do you see in how the diaspora has both come to the Americas and uh, and the state of those today? Yes, Matt. Uh, what happens is that uh, you know almost all Indians, including me, when we think of first Indian to have come to America. We immediately think of Swami Vivekanan and, you know, first time when I went to Chicago, I made sure that I go to the Art Institute and pay my tributes to the great land, you know, where, um, where first Indian came. But less we know, you know, little do we know that with Vivekanan also, uh, there was another colleague of uh, another Indian who came with Vivekanan, same time, same year, same place, Chicago, and his name was Veerchand Gandhi. And even I didn't know that until I started researching for this book. 
So this this is again lesser known aspects of Indian uh, Indian American history that that I thought that we should bring to the forefront. So he was the first Jain to have come to America because Jain monks and nuns, Jain ascetics, are prohibited from uh, traveling. They cannot ride in any vehicle, no airplane, no car, nothing, no not even a bicycle. So Jain there was a Jain monk who received the invitation for the same World Parliament of Religions, Parliament of World Religions, but because of the prohibitions, because of their own self discipline. The, he inspires uh, uh, this uh, Jain lay person who is very well learned, learned person, you know, pretty pretty good scholar of Jainism. So he is sent to represent Jainism with Vivekananda at the same parliament. So that's where I started start my history of this chapter on history of Jains in America. So I, I start with with that other Gandhi, you know, Mahatma Gandhi. Everybody knows, but this is the other Gandhi who came with Vivekananda to represent Jainism in the same parliament. Then I trace to, of course, the you know. Jainism's influence through Srimad Ratchandra on Mahatma Gandhi, through Mahatma Gandhi to Dr. Martin Luther King, and especially the tradition of non-violence that is really equated with, with Jainism, especially by Jains. So Dr. King, he comes to, to India, he visits the place where Gandhi had lived in Mumbai, and then he, Dr. King goes back to America, and then the you know, civil rights movement is launched, and the rest is history. As we know, you know, America is still being shaped and reshaped, reformed by the traditions of Civil rights and, and the civil rights movement and nonviolence and whatnot. So that's where I, that's what I highlight in, in the chapter of Jainism. And of course, with actual you know, practicing Jains, Indian Americans who started coming to, to America mostly after 1980s, 90s, of course, and then and, and on and on. So there are now 100,000 Jains also across America, across North America, uh, and they have built also you know magnificent temples, just as Hindu temples. Many temples are common. Uh, you know, one same temple which is you know, shared by Hindus and Jains. So there's a Jain Murti in addition to Hindu gods and goddesses, Hindu Murtis in the same temple. But there are many, many Jain temples now that are totally separate and specifically Jain temples. Some temple, okay, another really interesting aspect of uh, Jainism's history in America is that there are two, two sects of Digambars and Shetambars, sure. so-called sky-clad and white-clad. Yeah. Now, nowhere, in the, nowhere else in the world, uh, world except Nepal, Nepal is an exception, but in India, Digambars and Shwetambars never share any temple in India. But in America, very interesting, you know, almost all temples are shared by both Digambars and Shwetambar. And even the largest body, just as Hindu American Foundation represents all Hindus across America, there is another similar counterpart in, Jain, in the Jain community, which is called as a Jaina, J-A-I-N-A, Jain Associations in North America. And that body represents all Jains, Digambars and Shwetambars. This is a really interesting uh, experiment that Jains have done in, Amer in America successfully. And you know, they remain united, all, the, all these different sects. And probably that, this unity inspired Jains in Nepal also, which like, like I mentioned, Nepal also has a shared, you know, one temple building shared by both Digambars and Shwetambars, although separated by two floors. So upper floor is Shwetambar and uh, bottom floor is Digambars. Uh, but in India, it remains to be seen this unity. So all these, you know, lesser aspects, uh, lesser known aspects of Jainism, Jains in 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 America, and what all they've been doing, how they have how they organize these conventions biannually. So once in every two years, they do these conferences and they invite Jain scholars from India, and and how they are running successfully running uh, Sunday schools to to make sure that kids growing up in America are made sure that they also learn uh, about Jain values. Non-violence and vegetarianism is extremely important for, for all Jains across the world. So how Jain kids remain, you know, very um, audaciously vegetarians and even vegans now. All those things that I trace in that chapter on the Jain uh, diaspora in America.
When you wrote the book, you're teaching at the University of North Texas. Now I understand yes. you've moved back to India to start teaching, what is it, India studies at Flame University? Yes. Uh, so, yes. so in an Indian university, what is India studies and what, what will, what, what <laughs> yes. will it, be, it be covering? Yes, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, it is, again, I think uh, probably um, Indian uh, Americans or, or just Indian studies in, in America is kind of, I think, you know, sort of becoming a role model in especially liberal arts in India, where, uh, you know, everything else was being taught, you know, Western philosophies, Western literature, English department. But when it comes to Indic studies, you know, so they will teach Farsi, they will teach Urdu, they will teach uh, German and French and everything. But Sanskrit is a late entry at most prestigious universities across India. So, you know, Western philosophies will be taught all over India, but when it comes to uh, Yagyaval or uh, uh, Aryabhat or Bhaskaracharya, still a foreign name to most kids growing up in India. So, so these are the lesser known aspects about Indian history, Indic history, that are still to be taught to Indian kids growing up, which is really surprising and ironical, I know, but that's the fact. So when I was growing up in India, in Rajasthan, in a very small town, Pali, in Rajasthan, I didn't know that the, you know, you know, even though second time Jewish temple was destroyed in Jerusalem, right? And the Jewish people uh, shipwrecked all the way to Kerala. Christians have a similar flourishing uh, tradition for almost two millennia in India. Most, you know, one of the oldest mosques in the world after Mecca and Medina is also in Kerala. In 900 CE, the first mosque was built in India. All these lesser known aspects of Indian history, Zoroastrians came to Gujarat, as we know, for you know, centuries ago. They have a flourishing uh, tradition in India. So Tata being the business, biggest business group in India, which is a practicing Zoroastrian group. So these, these lesser, lesser known aspects of history of India are, you know, and then Indian kids are taught to respect secularism. You know, why should Indian kids be, be learning about a foreign con concept such as secularism when we have such flourishing tradition, traditions of accepting people of all races, all religions, all classes, all castes, with open arms, because, you know, I think this is Advaita in action, Anekantvad in action, when, when Indians have accepted with open arms, like I said, Jews, Christians, Muslims, Zoroastrians, and on and on. So why should we not, you know, why should indicates be not taught, taught about these flourishing traditions of harmony, acceptance, and so on? So those, those are the aspects that I hope I can, you know, uh, do my part, at least, to, to spread this awareness uh, and, and so on. So what will, um, what, what, what part of this program are you taking over? I, forgive me I, if you send it to me prior to this. What, what, what is your role in this exactly? Yes, so uh, Index Studies Initiative uh, hopefully will become a center at Flame University. Flame University is uh, the pioneer in liberal arts in India, liberal, you know, uh, as a private institution where uh, it's al almost already more than a decade that it, is, it started, uh, where, you know, so silos, we, we talk about, uh, in, in, even in American uh, education system, we talk of silos. So science or STEM fields are siloed from liberal arts. So FLAME was the first experiment, at least in India, where they want to mix liberal arts with management education. So FLAME stands for, FLAME is actually an acronym. It stands for uh, Foundation for uh, Liberal Arts and Management Education, F-L-A-M-E. So, uh, so anybody who is doing MBA, for example, will also get to learn liberal arts. And now with this Indic initiative, they will hopefully get to learn more about Indian traditional knowledge systems, Indian philosophies, Indian religious traditions, Indian languages, Indian histories, 
and and on and on indian theories indian psychology patanjali is still a foreign foreign name for indian students for most indian students because so psychology is still taught mostly from freudian perspective or jung's perspective yes there might be some reference to, to patanjali but i'm not aware of a you know full course maybe on on yoga sutra in in america in in indian university those are those will be my you know little uh, attempts to bring in patanjali to the mainstream yagyavalki to the mainstream aryabhatta to the mainstream so i was watching a documentary on on history of mathematics worldwide uh, made by a british historian and through that documentary i learned just five some years back seven eight years back when i was watching the documentary in dallas i learned that the world's earliest example of zero zero the first time ever where, wherever it was carved as a digit that was the gwalior fort in india in madhya pradesh now most people in india even are not yet not yet aware of but a british historian note, notes it so why should we we be taught this history of indian mathematics for example to indian kids history of indian science to to indian kids so those will be all, all part of indic indic uh, initiative indic studies initiative at at kb university it's really interesting you bring up the first zero i've seen that manuscript actually it was on um oh, wow. it was uh, it was on display as part of a history of indian contributions to science that was at a oh, wow. museum yeah. in london um oh, nice. a few yeah. years ago uh, for you know listeners forgive me i forget exactly what what museum it was but uh -huh. it's really interesting it's like it, you know it's it's on this small manuscript yeah, so the so manuscript manuscript uh, you uh, you have seen i've not even seen the manuscript but what i was referring was uh, the gwalior fort's wall apparently one of the walls in the gwalior fort a castle that's where zero is carved uh, and that is the you know first ever representation of digit zero in the world that i want to go and see myself also i have not been to gwalior yet so we we've known each other for a couple of years you know through our interest mm -hmm. in hinduism and ecology yes. you know yes. I, i've only known you as an academic but through yes. reading another review of your book, I understand you first came to the U.S. in the 90s on an H-1B visa and you were yes. working in the tech industry. Is that correct? Yes, yes, yes. I, yeah. I trained up as a, my father is an engineer. So following the footsteps of my father, most Indian male children of at least in that time, 90s, 80s and 90s were all becoming engineers or doctors or chartered accountants. We didn't have much career options in liberal arts or, or other fields. So I also became a computer engineer uh, and then I worked in Mumbai, Rajasthan. and then uh, like most indian uh, uh, software engineers were doing i also ended up in us in uh, in late 90s yes yeah so how did how did you make that shift into academia was that something that you had always aspired to but decided that yes. you know well engineers uh, software engineers get paid much better than academics and by and large <laughs> um, how, yes, how, so, how did you make that shift right so when i was growing up in middle school high school my passion were were always into sanskrit and liberal arts and social studies and music and so on but again like i said my father is an engineer so more you know career options are really into only in stem fields at least in that time uh, at that time period in india but when i when I, as i was leaving in uh, india for as i was coming to us very interesting matt uh, there were two uh, uh, north american software experts uh, experts in uh, it software language called small talk they came to train us from canada and us uh, mr alan benson and mr dwight dugoy funny i still remember their names so they were teaching and as they were returning back to north america our hr uh, team wanted to gift them some uh, symbols of indian culture so this is a penal group in hyderabad and so they were gifting them albums of uh, you know uh, pandit ravi shankar pandit shukmar sharma a copy of the bhagavad gita and all of these things were being gifted to these people uh, who came from north america and as they were receiving these gifts i was just awestruck 
I wonder, I was wondering, I call myself Indian. I'm born in India. I've never read the Bhagavad Gita. I've never listened to or even bothered to understand, try to even try to understand the music of uh, Pandit Haripana Chaurasiya's flute or Pandit Ravi Shankar Sitar or Pandit Shivkumar Sharma Santur. When will I get to learn all these things? You know, here we are gifting these great wisdom, great pearls of Indian culture to foreigners. And we Indians, we have no time or no interest to, to, to learn these things. That began my, that began my search for, to, to explore my own heritage. And as I arrived, as I arrived in, in America, my search became more intense. And I, uh, thankfully, with, with you know, destiny's blessing, nature's blessing, God's blessing, Bhagwan's blessings, I got into Columbia University. Uh, as soon as I got my green card, I left the IT career, became a full-time student at Columbia, Columbia University in New York. Got my master's and uh, then tried for PhD, got into PhD and then step by step. And then, yeah, and then it's time to, I guess, go back and give back to my motherland. So here I am back to my motherland. So, you know, full U-turn mm-hmm. back in India now. Yes. So what do you see is the challenge, are the challenges ahead for the Hindu and Jain communities in the United States? You know, as both are continuing to grow, we were seeing, you know, increases in immigration and it, to bring it back to something you said before about Jain temples being united in the United States and sometimes even overlapping with Hindu temples, we see an older generation of Hindu temples that are mixed between Vaishnava and Shaiva traditions, which you don't necessarily see in, in India. But so we're see, seeing the influence of growing numbers of people. What, what do you see as the challenges then? Yeah, Matt, I've been thinking about this and, uh, you know, I think, um, uh, what happens is when Indians leave India and come to America, like other immigrants, when as they forego their citizenship or nationality, and as they become Americans, their nationality or citizenship turns into into their adherence to more serious adherence, more serious practice of their religion. So in my own case, I became more serious about their, my Hindu Jain heritage. I became a regular. Uh, practitioner of, uh, of of my own traditions, which I was not necessarily doing in India because I was happy being an Indian. But I stopped becoming Indian. I became more serious Hindu slash Jain, right? And and when uh, and then when the next generation takes up these ideas, what is happening? I think, uh, and you can you can correct me if I'm wrong, but this is my hypothesis. What is happening is that so nationality becomes religious tradition. Religious tradition in the next generation is getting racialized. So, uh, you know, Indians, uh, rather than being called, you know, many, especially next generation of our uh, diaspora kids, next generations, I think they are very happy to be called as South Asians because of the racial solidarity with other South Asians. That works well to, I think, to assert or to ask or to fight for their civil rights. So what is happening, I think, is, is that the, the so, so, so we are being, I think the discrimination that can happen or, or the diversity, inclusion or, or equity that, has, that should happen should really happen, I think, at more at two different levels. Religious equity, diversity and inclusion and racial diversity, equity and inclusion. It should not be one way or the other. So what, I, what I'm trying to say is that the, for, for the first generation immigrants, those who are fresh from India, they are, I think, worried about their religious uh, inclusion. So asking for Diwali holiday, for example, that we tried in Dallas and we didn't succeed, but other parents did succeed in, in Maryland, uh, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, and Massachusetts. Many school districts have indeed accepted Diwali as, a, as an annual holiday. So this discrimination that is happening 
uh, is I think because Christmas and Good Friday are annual holidays. But if you ask for Diwali, it becomes an issue of separation of church and state. So this is the this is the topic of religious diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? But by the time next generation grows up, their idea, I think their awareness, their tendency is more about to to assert their racial rights because in a process, I think religion does get racialized in America. So any anybody who is not white is automatically non-Christian, or, or or let me say other anybody who is not non-Christian get also I think racialized as non-white, and so they they uh, you know so so I think it's a it's a very uh, tough rope to walk you know which which left or right where should we if you if you want religious you know religious equity religious civil rights we think probably uh, right should help us or right should support us but if you ask for racial rights racial inclusion racial equity. We think probably left should help us, but in, because we don't have enough votes, because we still don't are not seen, I think, as powerful enough vote bank. Both parties are, I think, I think, still ignoring us, and uh, and because most of us, many of the Indian people are not even sort of registered to vote, not becoming citizens early enough. I think I, it's too many things, and, and I think it's it's a very complex topic. But I just keep wondering about these religious equity and racial equity, and my thoughts are still evolving. I think. I don't know if it's, I, I sound more confused or, but I thought I'll, I'll, I'll bring in these two different aspects of religious equity and racial equity. So they, you know, th- th- thanks for taking the, the time to do this. Um, is there something that we haven't talked about that that's in the book or not in the book that, that you feel listeners should know about? Uh, yeah, Ayurveda is one thing. The other thing is the civic uh, bodies such as school boards and uh, city councils uh, and how to, you know, increase our participation there. That also we didn't okay. talk about. Let's go down Ayurveda first and city councils. They, they, unless you can somehow weave those two together for, you know, make a more sattvic city council or something. Ayurveda and city councils. Those are two seemingly disconnected topics, but let's let's do Ayurveda first and then we can transition into city councils. Okay. Okay. Right. So Ayurveda has also a very interesting journey. It started uh, with... Marshi Mahesh Yogi coming to Iowa, and now there is a, as we know, there is a flourishing uh, city, Fairfax in Iowa, where there is a uh, Vedic city and there is a currency of Ram there and, and all that. But Ayurveda really starts from there. And then Deepak Chopra picks up from Marshi Yogi, Marshi Mahesh Yogi. And then, uh, and then there is also Dr. Vasant Lard, who comes to New Mexico also, you know, almost 30, 40 years from now. And he still has an institute there in Albuquerque where I went and interviewed him. I was really fortunate to get his interview firsthand. And I published that entire interview in, the, in, in, the, in my chapter on Ayurveda, history of Ayurveda in America. And, and so these are these pioneers who brought Ayurveda to America. But uh, as we know, Ayurveda is still treated as something, some kind of a voodoo topic uh, by the mainstream medical practitioners um, uh, in America. So there are some really problematic things still written about by the some government agencies such as NIH on, against Ayurveda, which is, I think, really uh, discriminatory and um, uh, disparaging. So, but so, but good thing is that um, that many, many Ayurvedic associations have come up now in the last few years, such as NAMA, National Association of uh, Ayurvedic Practitioners, and, and Indian Ayurvedic doctors have also formed their own association in America. So there are now literally, I think, more than 1,000, easily more than uh, almost 2,000 Ayurvedic practitioners all across America, and they all have formed these bodies and associations, and also they are trying to assert their rights and trying to ask for more licensing, more sort of 
approval by by government of uh, different state governments and federal government for approval so that they can practice ayurveda legally and without much much challenges uh, other part that i trace also in the same chapter is the history of indian doctors in america which is also very less talked about the indian doctors when they started coming to to america they had to fight a lot of discrimination so they were being sent away to you know poor uh, rural neighborhoods where uh, so called white doctors didn't want to go so indian doctors were being pushed there they were uh, asked to may do some clerical kind of menial kind of jobs but now of course indian doctors have formed their own largest ethnic organization in america is of indian doctors and they are pretty well organized and now they are pretty well respected but that was not the case when they came in so i interviewed dr navin shah from uh, baltimore he gave me again a first hand interview and he was one of the co-founders of api and how he was one of the sort of pioneering a uh, person who fought for the rights uh, for equity diversity inclusion for indian doctors he went to senate in washington dc many times and asked for equity and what were called as foreign doctors were eventually at least called as international doctors which is less disparaging term but foreign because foreign remains foreign forever but at least international doctors was so it's just a name change but it gave them more respect and inclusion and and, and so on So I interviewed Dr. Namisha and, and on and on and, and many other doctors. I I uh, mentioned in in that in that chapter. I also interview other doctors, Ayurvedic doctors in Dallas area where I was living that time. Uh, so I trace that them also in 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 that chapter. So Ayurveda is another. Uh, I think uh, still a counterculture. It is not really main, uh, being accepted by mainstream Americans. But I think uh, the 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 efforts are on and hopefully. now that uh, we have complementary medicine as a category that has been established and accepted by by nih i think hopefully ayurveda will gain more and more attention and acceptance uh, chinese medicine uh, i also briefly compare it with chinese medicine uh, so chinese medicine are are uh, you know were really promoted by chinese people themselves but ayurveda was actually promoted by some of the non indian practitioners also such as colleagues of dr vasant lad also and uh, and and many other uh, uh practitioners of ayurveda so all that i chapter i trace in that chapter on on ayurveda and and history of indian doctors mm-hmm. then uh, very briefly i also talk about in history of indian food and indian restaurants in america also which starts with new york and how uh, it is still not as powerful as uh, let's say chinese japanese or thai restaurants in america not as popular but indian restaurants are still growing uh, but not yet they're uh, not comparable with thai thai restaurants or chinese or japanese restaurants To, to compare with other Asian food, yeah. Sure. So, so city councils. Let's let's wrap it up on ah, city yes. councils. How how can um, yes. the the diaspora better engage with their local city government? Yes, yes, yes. So, yes, where D- Dallas, where I was living, uh, uh, now has many school boards have actually allowed uh, to for many Indians to enter school boards, and because Indian uh, parents are very careful, very concerned about the education that their kids are receiving. They're getting more involved, and they actually run for elections. They have won many elections, such as you know local elections, to to join school boards. To maybe hopefully now the second step would be to better portrayal of Indian people, Indian history, uh, Hindu people, Hindu traditions in many of the textbooks. That that's still to be done. I think California has has achieved some uh, some milestones, but the rest of the states are I think still lagging behind. So many textbooks are still portraying all, all the you know. Miss portrayal of many Hindu slash Indian traditions, so all that should be, I think, the next step. Similarly, city council elections are also uh, are uh, now we see more and more participation by Indian people, uh, Indian uh, citizens. You have to be a citizen, a U.S. citizen, to be able to uh, run for these elections. But I think there is a vast scope to 
to show our presence more better, much better and more uh, vibrant by joining these local bodies. That's where we actually contribute to local, uh, you know, grassroots democracies. Uh, we talk about Jaipal and other, uh, you know, uh, Khanna and all who are, uh, you know, who are in Washington, D.C., but there are so many, you know, hundreds of local bodies where we can also show our presence so that our, our traditions are quoted better, our rights are respected better, our people are respected better. And so I think that's where I think we should get more and more and more involved in these uh, local bodies also. Great. Which is what I trace in other chapter. Yeah. yeah great. So, last thing, if listeners want to pick up a copy of the book, Dharma in America, a short history of Hindu Jain diaspora, how can they do that? And if they, they want to follow your work in general, how can they do that? Sure. It's uh, my, my, all, all my books, uh, all my three books are available on Amazon, Amazon India or Amazon in America. And uh, I'm, uh, you know, pretty active on Twitter, uh, Prof. Pankajan, Facebook, Prof. Pankajan, Prof. or Professor Prof. Pankajan, or Instagram, so, or YouTube, Pankajan India. And, and uh, yeah, happy to interact with anybody. Any further questions, I uh, would be happy to interact. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help this show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF www.indoamerican.org slash donate.